we're going to be considering what it means to forget something. Because there's nothing worse, is there? To feel like there's something I'm forgetting. That's what it means to forget. And it could be something simple. I know I'm only 41 years old, but I'm sure we all know the feeling of going to the refrigerator, opening it up, and thinking, what was it that I'm looking for again? Or to the garage for a tool to get there to say, okay, which tool was it that I'm supposed to be getting, the flathead or the Phillips head screwdriver? But here in Mark chapter 8, we pause there because if you've ever studied the Bible here, this passage sounds familiar the feeding of the 5,000, but not so fast. If we go just one more verse, it was good we stopped where we were, because Mark chapter 8, verse 9 says about 4,000 men were present. So this is not the feeding of the 5,000. That happened back in Mark chapter 6. This is a different miracle, but just like the other miracle, A lot of the details are very similar, including, as we heard read for us, the place where the disciples didn't know where the food was going to come from. Now, the first time with the feeding of the 5,000, that might make sense. They hadn't seen yet that Jesus had the ability to provide food, even when there wasn't any food. But just a few chapters later here, we see the very same thing happen again. And the disciples were still wondering, I don't know where we're going to get enough food, which has caused some people, as they study the Bible, to consider maybe this was a mistake. Maybe they accidentally wrote it twice, or maybe they added it again for emphasis, but that doesn't pay attention to what the Bible actually says. So we'll skip forward. Just in the same chapter, verses 13 through 21, it tells us that Jesus left them, got into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you not still, to still not understand? So as you can see, Jesus even reviews this for us to make sure that we know yet again later when Jesus was talking about yeast, they were still thinking about bread which is why Jesus here summarizes to say these are two separate food miracles, and yet they're still forgetting what we're going to be seeing together this morning, that God truly does provide. Even when it doesn't seem like it or other people doubt how God can work, 
we're meant to make sure we never forget so we don't repeat what we see here. In fact, the first way we can see this comes from chapter 8, verse 2, where it tells us that this time, the feeding of the 4,000, it was prompted by Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples that first identified the need for people to eat. But here, part of why this is repeated is so that we can see that Jesus took compassion. Jesus saw that these people had been with them, listening, learning about the kingdom of God, hungry to know about their spiritual lives. And in the process, their physical need for food came up. Instead of Jesus dismissing them or saying, hey, I've already done that miracle. No, this time he does something different. He shows us about his true compassion, which helps us in our own lives to make sure that we don't forget how God truly provides. The first way is to see that compassion moves to action. God's compassion does something. In fact, in the original language of Greek in the New Testament in the Bible, the word for compassion comes from the word for your your gut, your, your organs, your insides, meaning it was literally felt within you from deep down your very core, compassion within Meaning Jesus just didn't have a passing feeling to say, okay, I wish there was something that can be done, but I hope you can get some food. No, here, Jesus realized that these people were with him for three days. They had risked running out of food because they didn't care. They were with Jesus. They couldn't get enough, which is why Jesus, after spending time here with these people, he felt in the very heart of his core, compassion for the entire person, not just their spiritual needs, but their physical needs as well. The repeated miracle here is meant to show us the true nature and character of Jesus, who doesn't just say, ah, you know, I'm sorry you're having a bad day. He cares. He knows our needs, and it moves him to action. The opposite is true, too. Jesus didn't just say, okay, fine, I guess I'll give you some food. Here, take some food. I hope now you're happy. No, this is meant to show us how true compassion works so that we don't neglect to do the same in our lives. In fact, as Jesus was seeing this, we can see a few things of how that helps us consider Compassion. One way I saw it illustrated is it's like three legs on a stool or a chair. One of them would be nice, but if you just have one leg on a chair, it would fall over. Two, it might be able to be stable, but three will be fully stable. So we can see three aspects of Jesus' compassion. And the first is that he spent time so he saw the need. He really realized he wasn't just talking at people. He was concerned about what they were going through. Just like in our own lives, when we consider how God cares for us, he's present, he's available, he knows what we're going through, which means when it comes to having his compassion, 
we can trust and know that he'll help us to do the same, to not just go about our busy lives, but to ask God to fill us with his compassion so we can see the needs of others. The second way we can consider the compassion of Jesus is that inner feeling. Again, he, he recognized a need, but he took time to actually feel and experience it, which is why we're meant to do the same. Over and over in the Bible, we're told to make sure we don't just go about our own needs and concerns. One example is Romans 12, 15, that is real simple enough here to say that we're meant to weep with those who weep. It's the call to not try to fix people, but truly understand what they're going through. Jesus himself, a few times we're told, didn't just cry tears. He wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It shows that Jesus truly, by coming into our world, being born fully human, adding to his deity, his godness, full humanity, it means that he suffered and knows what it's like to go through loss and pain and hurt. Isaiah 51, verses 3 through 5, describes Jesus in this way. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, he was esteemed not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Here in the Gospel of Mark, as we started this year, we've been considering the title Jesus has, the King of Kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He's the greatest master there is, as I was considering some of those titles to show how great he is, I was reminded of when I lived in South Africa, there was a gentleman there who would always, when he would pray, says, Jesus, you're the boss. You're the boss. You're in charge. And that is true. But one that might get our attention, as we see here, is Jesus, one title he's given is a man of sorrows. It's not to describe as, as if he walked around to hang his head and just felt insecure and sorry for himself. It shows that he fully knows what it's like to experience tough days, hard days, to be made fun of and ridiculed. He not just sees our pain, he knows firsthand what it's like to go through this difficult world. The very Son of God and the reality is, he did not have to do that. But he chose to come and suffer. He did so not because of his own sin and selfishness. He did it for us. It was our brokenness, our selfishness, our punishment that we deserve. Jesus himself took it upon the cross so that we can know what it means to trust his compassion, to know he truly does care for us. 
So the third leg of this compassion chair that we're building here not only sees, not only feels, but finally he did something. Jesus doesn't just feel bad for us and say, I wish there was something I can do. His compassion moves to action, which means when we turn to God by faith, we're told we're being conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, which means we are getting to know him more and our lives are being changed to be more like Jesus, not just now, but forever. And one aspect, as we see here, is his compassion. We are gifted, given the very compassion of God to work in our hearts and our lives spiritually through the power of God's Holy Spirit, which one way I saw it said is, is that that means that no Christian should ever say, well, you know, I'm just not very compassionate. This isn't an option. The good news is when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, one of the many gifts we're given is his compassionate heart so that our lives now can continue to grow, to learn more about the compassion of Jesus. And part of it is exactly this, to make sure we don't forget to listen and learn and study about the very heart of Jesus who promises to help us to live compassionately. However, here in Mark 8, even though Jesus was moved to compassion, seeing that people were in need after being there for three days, verse 4 points out the disciples saw the problem. They said, in this remote place, can anyone get enough bread to feed them, even though this had happened before? And as we pause in this passage, it's a helpful reminder to see that from one perspective, they were bringing up a real need, weren't they? They were distant. They couldn't go to the store to buy bread. But they should have remembered what Jesus had done before. But it's pointing out, even though Jesus was right there with them, the way to get help seemed distant, which is our next point this morning. Even when help feels distant, God is near. Jesus promises to be with us. And the good news is Jesus didn't dismiss them. He wasn't hesitant on what to do. He heard the need. He saw the need. And he was right there to provide the help that was needed, even though the disciples felt like there was nothing that could be done. We're out in the middle of nowhere. The same is true for our lives today. Sometimes, perhaps, we can hear how people describe their relationship with God, and it says they, they, they say that we can really feel God's presence. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life at times and in moments, but at other times, you might be left wondering, well, why can't that happen all the time? Why can't it feel like God is close by and nearby all the time? I remember hearing a gentleman share this in his own life to say that he used to wonder about this and hear about people's experience about sensing God's presence and he said he's more rational and, and logical and he never really fully understand it. So one day he was out walking and thinking this through and out of nowhere, 
he felt the presence of God. And he said it was an amazing experience, but it was only for that short moment, and then it was gone. And he was still left wondering, why is it that God shows up at certain times, and maybe even in your own life, you can remember experiences of, of singing songs or an excitement to see God at work, and, and then it's wonderful to experience this, but it doesn't seem to last every day, does it? So this gentleman said, instead of talking to intellectuals about this, he thought to go to an inner city pastor in the U.S. who uh, seemed to be spirit-filled and have some good insights about how God shows uh, his presence and makes that known. And instead of hearing more about that, he shared this experience and, and asked his friend, why, why, why is it that God doesn't feel this way all the time? I, I experienced him as I was walking. What do I do with this experience? And this inner city pastor shared back to say, well, you, well don't get used to that feeling because God doesn't do that all the time. And it's so that we can learn to trust him even when we don't feel it with our emotions. We're meant to make sure that we let God's word direct us and not get distracted by the feelings of even either God being close or, in this case, God feeling distant. And God speaks right into that in many places in the Bible. And one passage particular is in the book of Jeremiah, one of God's prophets in the year 600 B.C., at a time where God felt very distant for Israel, God's people. It was during the Babylonian exile, which was when God's people, Israel, were taken from their land. They were kicked out. They lost their freedom to live. And they were wondering, where is God? What do we do now that our enemies have come in when life gets difficult? When the reality is, even before this, God had been clear that the exile was going to happen. If their hearts weren't right, they were ignoring God's word. It was they themselves that had stopped listening to God. And yet, even though they had been taken by their enemies, God didn't give up on them. He was gracious to continue to speak which is why in Jeremiah 23, verses 23, 24, God says, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And it was in this moment that they had a chance to finally listen to what God had been saying. And to communicate this, he asked that question. Am I only a God in one place, in one feeling, in one time in your life? And the answer to that question is, of course not. God is telling us he's not limited to one place. To limit him to just feelings of nearness would be to try to limit God, to box him in, to try to control him with our feelings. But God also says, even though he's the God that fills all of the universe in all spaces, he does see our need. He does see all. Nothing and no one else can claim to have the full knowledge that God has. 
which means even if we don't sense his presence, there's nowhere we can go to hide from him. God fills all places. He's not limited to just one experience. He's greater than anything we can imagine. One way people have tried to wonder about this is to say, to illustrate it, it'd be like saying, oh, like, like gas. We can't see gas, uh, but you can put air into a, a bottle and it fills up the bottle, or even air in this room, it fills up the space. But even that fails to fully illustrate the truth of the reality of who God is. Because the reality is, is that air is diffused in all different Places, meaning you can't gather up all the air and put it into just one single space. Uh, the molecules spread out no matter where you put it. However, when we're meant to see about God's presence in our world, God is fully present in every given place. Every point in this room, God is fully present in every point outside of this room, in every place in the entire known universe. That's why in Jeremiah 23, God continues to say that, declares the Lord, this is who I am. Trust and know what he says to be true. But another thing to consider from Jeremiah's day, part of why God was honest in this way It's because, sadly, there was false understandings about who God is. In this chapter previously, he was calling out the false prophets, the false religious leaders, people who believed that they were living spiritually, only to do so for their own personal benefit, for themselves to prosper, at the expense of others. They were saying they believed one thing, but in practicality, they say the rules don't apply to them. They were claiming to be spiritual, and they were even saying, how dare you challenge us? We speak on behalf of God instead of pointing to who God is and what God was truly saying, which is why God corrects it here to say he's not a God that's distant. God knows. God sees all, even when there are people in situations that try to claim to be spiritual. We can listen to God's voice and let him correct our thinking in our hearts. That's why we need to be careful to make sure that everything that we're listening to is guided by God's word, including considering God's presence that God promises to be with us even when it doesn't seem like it. The good news is when it comes to the way that God gives, as we see here in Mark chapter 8, God goes to the full extent that even when they were in this remote place, even when it seemed like help was distant, Jesus points to our next point, which is the small things. Jesus starts with the simple to point out whenever we feel lost, whenever we feel like God might be distant, he is ready and available to point with what we have to make sure that God blesses not just the big things, not just the big plans that we might have, but he cares 
about even the small things that might get overlooked. As we can imagine in this moment when they were hungry, trying to scramble for what to do, there's so many people, Jesus, 4,000 plus. What are we going to do? Jesus calms the situation down. And in verse 5, starts by asking, what do we have? And they say, seven loaves. Seven loaves for 4,000. And in this miracle, we're not told the exact amount of fish. It just says a few fish. Could have been little sardines. But to that question, what have you got? And they bring it out. Jesus says, I can work with this. They only had a little. And clearly, from one perspective, it wasn't going to be enough. But with Jesus present, he shows it can be used mightily when we look to him. And it challenges us that sometimes when we are wondering how God is going to provide, we, if we don't watch it, we might start thinking that the bigger is better. More is more blessed. But here with both of the feedings, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus goes to great extent to have those numbers included to show even this small little amount, it matters and it can be used for God's glory. In fact, if we just jump ahead to the next chapter in Mark, Mark 9, verse 41, Jesus uses another simple illustration. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. doesn't take much to see that the illustration of a cup of cold water is to show us that even small things matter, don't they? God isn't dismissing the big ways that we can give as well, but he's making sure that we don't neglect the small acts of kindness, the simple ways, the things that often might even get overlooked and unnoticed. But if we look at that verse, if you notice, Jesus isn't saying every time we give a cup of cold water, meaning the point of the message this morning isn't, okay, let's all go get water and we'll just go give it all around. No, the point here is that Jesus says, a cup of cold water given in my name, meaning the true reward starts with recognizing, if you notice, it's those who belong to Jesus to receive faith by grace, to know that Christ has truly paid for all of our sins, that we're gifted, given eternal life, which means out of that abundance, the least we could do is to offer something, to show compassionately the way that God provides, not just in the big ways, but this is offered to any that come, all who come and trust can be used even in small things. And then in verses 36 and 37, Jesus uses another practical example in a simple, small way. It tells us he took a a little child and he had him stand among them, taking him by his arm. And he said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And again, that same thing is repeated, in my name. Which tells us that Jesus, his name is very important, isn't it? 
And verse 37 tells us why this is so important. Because Jesus was showing the power of welcoming not just the child, but the one who God the Father had sent. When we do this, when we live this, when we listen to what Jesus has said, it shows that we recognize the gift of salvation through Jesus alone and that our lives can be lived to show the extent of God's love to us by sharing that with others. That's why Jesus takes a moment here to make sure we don't miss the power of even small things, things like a child that might get overlooked. Because if we don't watch it, our world tries to define power and authority and wealth and influence in so many different ways. But we have to love the fact that Jesus starts here to say, make sure that you understand what it means to come to God humbly like a child, to depend on God as our Heavenly Father with childlike faith. Jesus, right here in this moment, is using the child in a cup of cold water to make sure that we understand this is what informs our giving and our living and our serving to use our influence, to use our power, to use what God has given, to make sure we look out for those who are in need. In fact, it changes even what the religious leaders we saw a few weeks ago in Jesus' day and sadly can still be misunderstood today. It changes how we see spirituality and faith, doesn't it? My pastor growing up would use this definition about what it means to live spiritually so that we can avoid making sure that we see that only those who are the most learned and have the most experience and do the greatest acts of service, those are the real spiritual people. But my pastor used this definition. To truly live for Christ is to give as much as you can of yourself to as much as you know about Jesus. And if you notice something there, Sometimes the older that we get, the reality is we we continue to learn more and more about who God is. But then we need to be living that out, not for our own benefit, but to help others. And then the other way around, the very brand new Christian placing your faith and trust in Jesus, maybe they only know a little bit about who Jesus is. And maybe they can only give a little bit of what they know to give in their life. But in Christ, that can be used mightily. And based on this definition, what it means is someone who just became a Christian and gives a little bit to what they little bit know, if we quantify it from what God says, they are doing more than someone who might know a lot from God, about God, but only gives a little bit. The idea is that even the small things can be used. The small things matter to God. As we continue to learn to grow and offer our lives to be used for his glory. Isn't it powerful to see people who do use their status and influence 
to be a blessing, not to try to show how great they are, but to help others grow. Which is why Jesus, to point that out, uses the opposite. Make sure that we don't neglect the next generation, those who are younger, those who are still growing and are learning. Which is why here in Mark chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, we see the results of those seven loaves. Started out a small meal, but it tells us that the people ate and they were satisfied. It even tells us the amount left over. And even though the disciples had experienced this once before, even though they realized they were out in this distant part, remote from any food, Jesus didn't just come to give a little. He took what they had and he multiplied it to show us our final point, that Jesus gives abundantly because nothing else can truly satisfy. That's why Jesus and the disciples, they didn't have to send the people away. Even though the disciples had forgotten this, Jesus made sure to show that he isn't limited all because of his great compassion. And what Jesus did was, an unex- was unexpected. Disciples had run out of ideas. They were wondering what we should do. And Jesus wasn't late to the game here to show what's needed. This whole situation is to help us to make sure we don't forget his true power to be able to help and provide in our lives. Maybe you've been in situations where you wondered, how is it that God is going to provide? Maybe you've had people in your life who are struggling to wonder, what does it mean that God is going to give and to bless? How do we help those who are going through situations that are beyond our control? That's no different than what we see here. But it wasn't until they looked to Jesus that the results started to come. It was Jesus who took the bread, gave thanks. It was Jesus that took the small amount of fish, gave thanks. And then the only details we're told is then the disciples distributed it. Maybe like me, you read this and you wonder, how is it that the miracle happened? Was it in the result of they would take the food and then they would give it out and they'd go back and there'd be more? Or maybe they started passing it around and as they passed it around, the food just kept multiplying. Maybe they saw it right in front of their eyes, just completely separate and continue to be more. But the truth is, we're not told about that, are we? And there's a reason for that. We're not told about that because they weren't worried about that part of the miracle. Their focus was on Jesus. Their focus was on the one that did this, not on how the miracle happened. In fact, many have even wondered, there were probably people there who ate and didn't even know the full story of what was going on, and maybe it wasn't until later that they read this or heard this to say, wow, I was there, and that happened. Jesus truly did feed us, and we were 
satisfied. The point is the miracle wasn't the focus. Just as they were there in the first place, their attention was on Jesus. That's true for us as well. In fact, in John's gospel account about the miracles of Jesus, later it tells us that people came looking for Jesus. And in John 6, they find Jesus and they want to learn more about who he is. But in verse 26, Jesus points out that it won't work to look to Jesus just for every miraculous sign and for every food miracle to be done the way people want it. That would be to try to use God selfishly, thinking that we can manipulate God's power to be used for our personal benefit. Instead, Jesus points out that he gives freely and abundantly when we come to him by faith. Jesus even points out the problem with miracles is as great as it would be to see a miracle like this. Jesus points out, even as he was telling the disciples, bread is just bread. We eat meals all the time, and in this case they ate and they were filled. But that was only a temporary moment. It doesn't truly satisfy bread Food alone is in an endless pursuit to get more and more food as we need. And that's why in John 6 and verse 27, Jesus says the problem is that food comes and goes and it spoils. It's like any other source that tries to offer true and lasting satisfaction. We don't have to list all of them because they're ongoing, trying to find satisfaction from money and power Success, even from good things like family and friends. As great as it is to have relationships, they cannot ultimately satisfy us. But Jesus came to bring a better way. Which is why in John chapter 6, verses 24 through 27, it said, Once the crowd had realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's why he tells us, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then on verses 34 through 35, Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Even the disciples had forgotten the miracles of Jesus. But what Jesus was promising here was his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's why it's described that God the Father has placed his seal of approval on Jesus to tell us, to show us that only Jesus saves, only Jesus can satisfy. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't just give a little bit. He doesn't just start with our little, but he blesses beyond what we can imagine. He forgives every sin. We can have this relationship with God 
eternally. Which is why even in, in hearing this, as you can imagine, verses 28 and 29, that important question comes up to make sure that we don't miss out or forget what it means to truly trust in the life that Jesus gives. But in John 6, it says, they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. About hearing about the way that Jesus provides this bread that only Jesus gives, the natural question is, okay, so what must we do? Are there any requirements? And Jesus gives the answer. The best part is, Jesus says the work is not work at all. To get eternal life, the abundant life that Jesus gives to satisfy forever, Jesus says it ends our working and laboring, trying to be spiritual, trying to figure out life and goodness on our own, trying to be good enough. And Jesus says it starts by believing in him. It starts by stopping the striving, stopping the working and the laboring, thinking that it's our behavior alone that can somehow get God's blessing, to get God's abundance. Jesus says he is the bread of life. He is eternal life. There isn't anything greater. Jesus is the greatest meal. He's greater than any amount of miracles. He's greater than bread and loaves and successes, experiences, and relationships. Jesus himself is all that is needed. And what Jesus did for us is all that was required, his perfect life on the cross. And upon hearing this, that very next question says, okay, Jesus, what must I do? How do I do this? Just tell me how to fix my life. Should I give more money away? Should I try harder? Should I pray more? Should I just show how great of a person I am? And incredibly, Jesus says, no amount of work on our own will ever be enough. But he tells us to believe in him, to treasure him above all, to receive this free gift of grace, which changes the things that we treasure. It changes our desires. He changes our values to instead allow our lives to be defined by the greatest gift there is, Jesus himself. Jesus who says, come to him to admit our brokenness and our sin, our failures. And in return, we're given freedom to stop striving, promised to us now. And our whole lives lived in light of an eternity forever with God. It shows us that God doesn't just bless a little, but he blesses abundantly. And as we close, just a few more examples from Jesus in John 10.10, who tells us honestly that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy the evil one, the devil, the ways of this world. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. I'll attempt a little Espanol here, but in Espanol, I think it's a little closer by saying in abundancia. Probably didn't do that and say that correctly, but an abundant, wonderful, thank you. First John 
Chapter three, verse one also tells us the amount, the quantity of what God gives. He says how great is the love of God and as great as love is, it even says that the Father has lavished on us. What great love. It's to show us the quality and quantity that God gives. To be gifted, given, provided so that we know that we can always look to Jesus to treasure him above all else to help us, to guard us from losing sight and forgetting our need for his compassion, for only he can satisfy. Would you close your eyes, bow your heads, and join me again in prayer as we close. Father, we rejoice to know even when we feel weighed down, when we go through the busyness of our days and our lives with all the different pressures that we experience, that you didn't leave us alone in this struggle. You sent your one and only son, Jesus, who lived through the very same struggles and then some that we go through so that we don't have to be alone. We can always look to you to be reminded of your great compassion your abundant love that's lavished, which means every sin is paid for so that our lives can be defined by the promise of eternal life and then also use what we have been given, even the small things, to be able to help others know more about your gracious, generous love. God, we don't have to wonder how that happens. Your word says if anyone believes on the name of Jesus Christ, they will be saved. So that we can give as much of ourselves as we can to as much as we know. Thank you so much for gifting us these truths and promising to be with us, to help us see your presence in this world even when life gets difficult. We ask you as we start into this week that you would help us to live compassionately. Would you allow us to be defined by the gospel good news of Jesus himself to save sinners who are in need. We rejoice in you. We praise you. So we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.